Welcome to the Ask Your Mentor podcast from Dementia Researcher and Alzheimer's Research UK, where mentees interview their mentors to hear about their careers, experiences, and to find out what makes them tick. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Your Mentor podcast. I'm Lizzie English. I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. Here, I'm in Professor Sir David Kleneman's group, studying how proteins change across Alzheimer's disease, specifically using super-resolution microscopy to look at size and shape of these proteins using post-mortem brain tissue that's been kindly donated. Alongside my PhD, I'm an iStart ambassador and also the founder of Women in Neuroscience UK. Last year, I decided to sign up to Alzheimer's Research UK's mentoring programme. This is a fantastic free scheme helping early career researchers to grow their skills and to gain new perspectives on their career. I chose to sign up for this as a first generation student trying to understand the many unspoken rules of science and academia. Every couple of months I have a meeting to catch up with my mentor. In a normal mentoring meeting we would discuss personal and professional experiences to learn about each other, to establish common ground, understand each other's concerns and examine our goals going forward. However, today is not a usual mentoring meeting and today we're not focused on me. It's all about my fantastic mentor, Dr. Kamar Amin Ali, who is a lecturer in biomedical science at Teesside University and an affiliate researcher at Glasgow University. Having already read some of Cam's amazing blogs on Dementia Researcher, I was very pleased to be matched with her through the Alzheimer's Research UK mentoring programme. I've gained so much reassuring advice from her so far already in this mentoring relationship. So it's time for the rest of you to meet my incredible guest and mentor, Dr. Cam Amin Ali. Hi, Lizzie. Good morning. Hi, Cam. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time to be here today. This series of podcasts are all about recognising that there's no such thing as a standard career path. So we're going to start each of these podcasts by asking our mentors to take us through their CV. We're going to go through each of the roles that you've had. We're going to discuss career moves, how these came about, and some of the thought processes that were going on for you at the time. Also, the achievements along the way and the key lessons you've taken from each of your roles. So Cam, it's 2006, Nintendo have just released the fantastic Wii, I'm sat at home playing Mario Kart while you're heading off to university. So tell us a bit more about what you chose to do for your degree and how you found this experience. So when you say it like that, 2006 just feels like a whole lifetime ago. Um, when we were chatting yesterday, we realised that in what, three years time, I'll be able to say that it was 20 years ago that I started university, which just seems unbelievable. And I, I think, God, where is that kind of 20 years? Where's it gone? And what have I done in that time? And so this is kind of a good opportunity to kind of for me to reflect on what I've done in, in those years. So in 2006, um, so I, I decided to study psychology at university. So my first degree was in psychology and I, and I studied that at Durham University. And the reason why I decided to study psychology was because when I was doing my A-levels, I found that that was the subject that really captured my interest. And it was the subject that nicely combined. Uh, so I was also studying philosophy at A-level as well as chemistry and biology. And I felt like psychology kind of captured those kind of philosophical questions, but testing them in an experimental way. Uh, so kind of bringing together that kind of philosophy and science together. So I decided to study psychology, went to Durham University. So I'm originally from the northeast of England, Darlington. Durham University is not far. I, I wasn't keen to kind of travel far um, for my degree. So Durham University was a good university in the kind of local area, uh, which is why I decided to go there. Now, whilst I was doing uh, my degree, I found what I found was the subjects that really interested me were kind of all of those ones that uh, were related to neuroscience. Those were the kind of modules and subjects within psychology that really captured my interest. 
But at the time, I wasn't thinking about having a career in science. I wasn't thinking about pursuing a PhD or anything like that. I was kind of interested in pursuing clinical psychology. So one of the things, there are different routes that you can kind of go down if you want to become a psychologist. They, a lot of them involve uh, doing a, a clinical doctorate or a doctorate in educational psychology or something like that. So I was interested in actually working clinically, wanted to do a clinical uh, psychology doctorate further down the line. So what I was trying to do during my degree is build up some clinical experience so that I would be competitive uh, when I would then later on apply for that clinical doctorate. Um, so it's it's kind of like... I had some idea of what I wanted to do at that stage. I was, I had something, but I was open-minded, but I had a kind of path that I thought, okay, this is what I want to kind of go down. And that led to me then uh, doing a master's degree at Durham University straight after my undergraduate. And I was only able to do that because I was given a scholarship from the university. I wouldn't have been able to have afforded to have done it otherwise. And I did that master's degree in cognitive neuroscience because, again, that's what I found I was interested in. But I wasn't doing the master's degree, in a sense, as a, a way to kind of pursue a PhD. Again, I was thinking, what will make me competitive for when I do the clinical psychology doctorate? And having this uh, master's degree should help with that. Um, completed my master's degree, um, was working in the NHS, doing clinical research, trying to build up my clinical experience. Uh, still not having a PhD on my radar at all, um, even though I did find that I enjoyed doing research when I did my two dissertations, when I did my undergrad and, and my postgrad dissertations. Um, it still wasn't on my radar at this point until my supervisor for my master's project, so the project that I did during my master's degree, he got funding for a PhD student uh, following on the project that I had done during my master's um, degree. And it seemed like a really, really good opportunity, but I was fully transparent that I still wanted to go down the clinical psychology doctorate. And I thought, well, do you know what? Maybe doing a PhD is almost like a three-year graduate job. I can see it as three years of having secure work. And then I'll come back to the, <laughs> to this clinical psychology doctor. It's almost like I was cl clutching onto this, always thinking, well, what can I do to make myself competitive to get onto the doctorate? Because it's so hard and it's so competitive. Um, so, yeah, I decided to, to take the position at Durham University during the PhD. Um, and that's... That's why uh, what I did next. So fantastic! Yeah, so that's really interesting that you were so focused on this clinical doctorate. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute, I think. Yeah. Um, but how how did you find your PhD? Did you enjoy it? Um, what did you get up to during that time? Yeah. So uh, it, it was kind of a good PhD for me to do because obviously I was already familiar with the project and familiar with where I was uh, doing the research, which was. Uh, a big help and a lot of the work that I was doing the research that I was doing was trying to refine uh, these kind of models of memory that we used to uh, with rodents to kind of test mechanisms and processes of memory so very much kind of basic fundamental science and it's that kind of classic uh image that you have of psychologists putting rats in a maze and that's basically what I spent a lot of my time doing um but then towards the end of that I started to do more wet lab work uh actually working on uh rodent tissue and and doing some immunohistochemistry staining to look for um staining of different uh, cells to look at neural activation and things like that. So I started to do a little bit more wet lab work, not just uh, working in the animal lab. Um, so it was really, really interesting. And I found that actually the three years that I did my PhD, I realized that I actually really, really like doing research. It really, really appeals to me. Um, but at the same time, I did actually uh still have in the back of my mind that I was going to apply for uh, a clinical psychology doctorate. And, and when I finished my PhD, I did then put in my first application for that clinical psychology doctorate. So, yes. Wow, nice. I'm glad you had a good PhD experience. That's good to hear. And it's nice how varied it was as well with the different techniques you were using. 
I wondered, because during your master's, you had to have a scholarship to be able to do that. During your PhD, did you have any sort of second job or were you just focused on the PhD during that time? So my PhD was funded uh, by the NC3R. So I was lucky to have a funded PhD, but because I wanted to sit in the back of mind to apply for that clinical psychology doctorate, I did have a part-time job alongside my full-time PhD because I wanted to kind of keep my foot in the door. So I was working in the NHS doing clinical research during that time. Um, So I was doing about 15, 16 hours a week um, to kind of, (laughs) I know it sounds like insane now, like how did I manage that? Um, I, I remember that I'd be spending like days in the lab and then going and doing home visits in the evening um I was doing a lot of weekend working as well which on reflection isn't the best kind of way to do a PhD um but I was so focused on what I wanted to do that I I saw I just kind of saw that that was the best way to go about doing it but I probably would have done things slightly differently now on reflection um but I felt like at the time I needed to kind of balance those two things because I hadn't had my mindset fully on research at that time. I had to keep my foot in the door if I wanted to still have that opportunity to apply for the doctorate. Wow, it's impressive you were able to balance both of those. That sounds like a very busy time. It was hard. (laughs) So yeah, so take us to this clinical doctorate. What happened with all of that? So as I said, I applied when I finished my PhD and I got an interview at Leeds University. But as I said, I I was really enjoying the research at this point. So I was kind of divided. I I did feel I was a, a little bit of a crossroads at this point where I thought, okay, I'll apply for postdoc positions and I'll apply for the clinical psychology doctorate. And I'll almost let the decision be made for me. Um, And whichever one comes first, I'll pursue that. Because at this point, I was really, I could have done either, I think. Um, I did get an interview at Leeds and I was put, so the way that it kind of works in clinical psychology for these doctorates is there's very, very few places and there's about maybe 10 places 10 15 places uh, per institution um, that run these doctorates and they interview people um then they you know offer the places but they also have like a reserve list so at Leeds I was put on the reserve list after my interview which was an achievement in itself because it was the first time I applied and often people apply over a number of years before getting a place so I was lucky that I actually got put on the reserve um for that But I also was offered a postdoc position. Um, So um, it was almost like the decision was made for me um, because it could have been so different if I'd actually got the place at Leeds doing the clinical psychology doctor. I would have pursued that, but I didn't in the end. And I got offered a postdoc position um, at University of Sheffield. And that was almost like the decision is made for me. I'm going to pursue research now. Wow, it's a really interesting approach, kind of letting, I don't know if it's fate, but the world decide for you which path to go down, because there are just so many, aren't there, from a PhD onwards. Um, But since you were working towards this clinical doctorate all the way since undergraduate level, and you were really focused on that, it must have been at least slightly difficult realising that this wasn't the path for you in the end. Um, Do you have any thoughts on this or any advice on dealing with any rejection like this? It was definitely hard at the time because I had spent a number of years pursuing this like by that point. But I think because I had this other path that by this point I was equally happy to have gone down, even though I did feel at the time like, oh, it's a failure and I'm like now having to kind of give up on that dream. Um, in my mind, I was almost relieved because I at this point was thinking research is probably much better suited to my personality because there's so many different things you do in research. It's so varied. You can jump from writing a paper to analyzing data to doing lab work. And that much better suits my personality and my brain than um, spending all day in a clinic and uh well as I imagine like writing up notes and doing a lot of admin and and that I think would be quite challenging for me to do so I think in the end and you know I I don't believe in fate but it almost is like I was put on the path that was right for me in the end so 
I think it would have been much harder if I didn't have that other option that I was equally happy to pursue. Fantastic. I'm glad it ended up kind of in the right direction. That's good to hear. So this postdoc, how did that go? My postdoc at Sheffield went really well. So I was working with, um, so when I was working at Durham, I was working um, with rats, but none of them were kind of disease models. They were just, because uh, we were looking at basic fundamental science. So when I was at Sheffield, it was the first time working with actual, an actual disease model. So it was a model of Alzheimer's disease. And I say it like that because... <laughs> It, it was a model that overexpresses um, amyloid precursor protein, doesn't have any tau pathology and so doesn't fully replicate as we see Alzheimer's disease in humans. But it was a really interesting project and it meant that I could do um, kind of combine some of those memory tasks and, and measures of cognition that I developed during my PhD in an actual disease model this time, but also uh, really developed my wet lab skills as well. So this is where I really started to focus on pathology. And it's where I developed an interest in neuroinflammation as well and, and focusing on uh, microglia specifically. Uh, it all started kind of in that project. So that was kind of a two year project at Sheffield that I did. And uh, that was something that uh, really got me into pathology and, and kind of interested in kind of focusing on that and starting to pivot more towards pathology. Nice. It's cool that you picked up those new skills there. So what happened after that? So after those two years, um, so we didn't get any funding to kind of carry on my position, which is kind of a theme that runs throughout my career, um, <laughs> running out of money and then trying to find a, another position. Um, so we got to the end of the two years and I was looking for other postdoc positions and almost was like at another crossroads point where I was applying for other postdoc positions, but I was open-minded. I wasn't wedded to the idea at this point of staying in academia. I knew that there were other options in terms of working in professional services or working for research funders, things like that. And I just applied for anything that I thought sounded interesting, anything that I thought fitted my skill set. And a job with the NC3Rs came up. So the NC3Rs are a research funder um, in uh, the UK. Um, they actually funded my PhD, so I was familiar with them. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to apply. I, I really like what they do as an organisation. Um, it'll be something different. I can see academia from another perspective. The whole job was around supporting researchers in various different um, activities and it meant I could stay uh, in Sheffield as well because I was living in Sheffield at the time because of my postdoc. Um, but it meant I could also support researchers at Manchester and Liverpool universities as well because it was a, a role that was spread over three universities providing support to those three institutions. So I actually ended up getting that job as a regional programme manager and I ended up doing that for the next two years. That sounds like a really cool job. Um, so I'd like to hear more about what NC3Rs is. What does um, their organisation stand for and why is their work important? Yeah, so I guess it's probably best first to kind of explain to any listeners who don't know what the three R's are. If they don't do any uh, animal research, they probably have never heard of the three R's. So the three R's uh, stand for replacement uh, reduction and refinement of, of animals in research. It's kind of like an ethical framework that uh, researchers use if they, if they use animals in their research. It's, it's an ethical framework that is kind of used and it's embedded. And it's a global thing as well. It's not just something specific to the UK. And it's embedded in all the research that we do with animals. Um, and, and the NC3R, so as I mentioned, they're a research funder in the UK, but they don't just fund research they also have a number of projects and initiatives that they're involved with uh, to kind of uh, promote the three r's amongst research institutions so they do lots and lots of different things not just fund research and so one of the things that they were investing in at the time was these regional program managers to actually be people on the ground supporting researchers with things like uh, grant applications um, we sat on um the ethical review bodies in the university, so reviewing animal licenses that would then go to the Home Office for approval. Um, and we did a lot of work on policy as well. So there were so many different things that I got involved in. And I definitely think I learned a lot more 
having done that position for two years than if I'd done a po- another postdoc position um, for those two years. Wow, that's really interesting. It's cool that you got that varied experience that a lot of academics aren't able to get by stepping outside of academia, something a bit different. Do you still remain involved with the NC3R? I do. Um, so um, I don't actually at the moment use any animals in my research, but um, certainly as an organisation, um, I support all the work that they do. And if there's anything that I can ever get involved in, then I'm always kind of offered to help. Um, and there is something that I'm involved in at the moment, which um, I don't know if I can say too much about, but it's something that um, we're um yeah it's something that is kind of relevant to a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment um so hopefully I can offer my expertise in in an initiative that they're currently working on which uh is going to be kind of being done in the next couple of months and over the next year or so that's exciting I like the vague top secret yeah (laughs) we'll have to stay tuned tuned for that (laughs) Mm. okay amazing so We've gone through the NC3Rs and you enjoyed your time there for two years. What happened after that? So, as I mentioned, with NC3Rs, I was travelling quite a lot because I was supporting Manchester, Liverpool and Sheffield universities. And after about two years, I feel like um, I was at a a point where I was thinking, okay, is this something that I want to pursue? Because um if I wanted to go back into academia then I think roughly around two years being out was the threshold that I felt if it was any longer I would probably struggle to get back into academia because I'd been out for too long I might not be up to date with current methods and things that are happening in my research area um there'll be things that I've probably forgotten how I think like the one thing I focused on was do I remember how to use a pipette like you know like something so basic like that will I remember how to do it um and so I felt like at that point I needed to kind of really think about what I wanted to do and I definitely wanted something that was a bit more stable otherwise I would have con- loved to have continued to work for the NC three hours forever because I love them as an organization. Um, but yeah, so I decided to, to make the decision to, to go back into academia. I applied for postdoc positions and I got one at Newcastle University. So this was um, a project that was funded by Alzheimer's Research UK. And it was something that really appealed to me because we were looking at uh, characterizing neuroinflammation, but this time using human post-mortem brain tissue. And we were looking at uh, different cases of dementia. So not just um, Alzheimer's disease, but also we were very much interested in uh, people that have had a stroke and then gone on to develop dementia. So we know that uh, having a stroke can make people more vulnerable to go on to develop dementia, particularly vascular dementia. So as a project, it really interested me because I'm, I was obviously interested in neuroinflammation at this point, and I had never worked on human postmortem brain tissue before, so it was adding a new kind of component to that. So it was a really, really interesting project, but unfortunately, it was only a very short contract. It was only about a year and a half, and then my funding ended again. <laughs> so that led on to me then looking for another postdoc position. At this point, we're now at the start of the pandemic and I managed to get a position at the University of Glasgow uh, because at this point, I'm now kind of fully immersed in the pathology field, uh, the neuropathology field and uh, joined another neuropathology lab, this time in Glasgow. And again, uh, interested in in looking at dementia and human postmortem brain tissue, but this time looking at uh, TBI, which is traumatic brain injury, as a risk factor uh, for dementia. So the cases that we were looking at were people who had had a brain injury in their life, donated their brains, uh, and then we were looking at, well, I was interested again in new inflammation, but from this different perspective this time. Awesome. Um, it's interesting that you were moving across these different universities. Was it purely, do you think, due to the funding running out or did you feel any sort of pressure to move between different institutions during your postdocs? So I would never have moved if I didn't have to. Uh, that's the honest truth. So 
um, when I thinking back to when I was um, doing my PhD, uh, if I'd been offered, uh, I was told then that if if I wanted to stay at Durham and do a fellowship, it would p- pretty much not be possible because at the time, if you were to do a fellowship uh, and apply to like an external organization, they would expect you to move institutions to do that fellowship. You were almost guaranteed not to get a fellowship if the fellowship was to stay at the university where you did your PhD because they were there was a strong emphasis on developing independence and uh, you couldn't do that if you were staying in the same place where your PhD supervisor was. Now that has changed a lot uh, in the last couple of years um, because there's this recognition that uh, recognition <laughs> recognition <laughs> there's this recognition that actually. Um, people have lots of reasons why they might be invested in staying within a particular university in a particular area and that shouldn't be a barrier to people getting fellowships and funding um so that at that point there was pressure for me to kind of go and do a postdoc somewhere else but when I went back to academia after the NC3Rs if I could have stayed at Newcastle then I would have if I'd had funding um so it wasn't like there was any pressure from people but it was the pressure was almost like a funding pressure yeah Mm. that's interesting I'm glad that it's improving and people are feeling less like they have to move between institutions just to you know benefit their CV um I think I'll feed back slightly into the NC3Rs to academia transition just to ask a little bit more about that so do you ever think back to that and regret your choice to come back to academia or have you um, enjoyed it so far? Have there been challenges you've faced that have made you think, oh, I wish I was working back at NC3Rs again? I haven't ever regretted it. Um, and I think that's because those two years that I spent out really gave me the space and the time to think about what I wanted to do. Um I feel like having done one postdoc position already and then the same amount of time doing something different meant I had both perspectives. I was fully informed and I was in a good position to make an informed decision. Um, so I feel like I it might have been different if I'd maybe done the uh, work of NC through us earlier, as in straight after my PhD, Um or even done it later but I think having spent the same amount of time doing a postdoc position at Sheffield then two years at NC3Rs I was well informed to make that decision to go back into academia at that point um so no I've never uh regretted going back into academia I knew what I was letting myself in for (laughs) Uh, don't get me wrong there's things that I don't like about academia and I complain about them all the time on my blog but (laughs) <laughs> to me it's plug plug, I love <laughs> plug, <that>. plug. but <laughs> it's definitely been the right choice for me um in terms of uh what I want to do in my career that's amazing to hear it's good you've had the two experiences and were able to kind of make your decision from there so you did your postdoc at Newcastle your postdoc at Glasgow and where does that bring us to now so that brings us now to uh, February 2022, which is just over a year ago. So at this point, I've done three postdoc positions. Uh, I've spent some time outside of academia. And so the natural progression in my career then is to think about, OK, I need some permanency now. Um, the options are I apply for a fellowship or I apply for a lectureship. And the fellowship option obviously is very competitive and it doesn't give you security because it just is, it's a step towards independence, but it's still a fixed term uh, position. Um, So I applied for a lectureship at Teesside University. So in the Northeast of England, um, never expecting to get it. I was thinking, well, it'll give me a good chance to, have some interview experience because I've never been interviewed for a lectureship before 
and it was a good position because it was teaching and research. I had only done a very small amount of teaching at this point um, that my uh, supervisor at Glasgow had kindly uh, given me some of his teaching that he was uh, doing and he'd let me kind of do some of his lectures and give me that experience, which I'm very grateful for. And so, yeah, it was it was 50% uh, teaching, 50% research positions. So it was kind of like a, a good opportunity, permanent position as well. And then I got offered the position. So I was like, oh, amazing. I now have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Afraid so. Yeah. It's like, okay, no, now I have to do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's awesome. It's amazing that you, you're lecturing and back home in the Northeast as well. That must be lovely. So it's interesting to hear that it's supposed to be a 50% split between teaching and lab. How's that working out for you at the moment? So I would say in the last 12 months, it certainly hasn't been split like that. And and certainly, I mean, even though it's supposed to be 50% each, it's not. It's more like 33% teaching, 33% research and 33% admin in terms of like what we actually do. But... Uh... <laughs> The dreaded admin. Um, but th th over the last 12 months, certainly more of my time has been spent on teaching and admin simply because that's the thing that is new to me and I've needed to invest more time in it in order for me to uh, build up my teaching skills and to learn how different things work and it, just as simple as like how you record a lecture, how you upload your material onto Blackboard and um, how all these different systems you've got to learn. Everything takes so much time. Um, so definitely I've had to prioritize my teaching over this past year and that's been a challenge trying to maintain the momentum of my research and not lose that because I think there's a bigger jump from um, going from a postdoc to a lecturer than there is at any other career stage in academia. Um, it, it's just like jumping in the deep end without any armbands and without being able to tread water um, because you, you suddenly go from working in a research group where you might have a technician, you might have another postdoc, you might have a PhD student, you've got your PR, you've got a whole support network around you. Just suddenly, oh, well, now it's all me and I don't have anybody. So for me, the best thing has been maintaining my network with researchers that I've worked with in my other position. So actually moving to different labs has benefited me now because I have that network. Otherwise, it would be quite isolating um, trying to keep your research going whilst you're also trying to prioritise all these other new things as a lecturer. Yeah, that does sound like quite a scary period. It's nice you've been honest about that. And good to hear that keeping that network across all the different labs is helping you. So at this stage in your career, what are you enjoying most about it? So even though it's the scary thing is um, being on your own and kind of trying to forge independence in your um research I would say that's the bit that I enjoy the most it's the freedom now of I can work with who I want to work with I can pursue what research questions I want to pursue I can use what methods I want to use um I can apply for what funding streams I want to apply for it's it's almost really liberating now um having you know for the last 10 plus years worked in other people's labs and I've always worked on grants or projects that are pretty much they say what you have to do because it's a, that's what's been funded. You have some flexibility, but, you know, you, you're very much kind of right. You're employed to work on this grant and do this project. Well, it's very liberating now having the freedom to decide what I want to pursue. Uh, it's the scary thing, but it's also the exciting thing as well. Absolutely. That's so cool. So. Now that you're doing mostly teaching and admin for the moment, how are you feeling about jumping back into research when that time comes? Well, I'm I'm excited about it. I've been applying for grants and uh, having some uh, some good experiences with that, some not so good experiences with that. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's it's taken me time to kind of get my ideas down, decide what I want to pursue, make contact with people that I want to work with. Um, I've enjoyed it, but it's 
it's it definitely gives it gives you the impression of how slow research is everything's takes time I mean I've already been in my position for over a year now and uh you know things just don't happen as quickly as you would like them to um but it's trying to not get frustrated about that and to just almost acknowledge it and remember that I'm in a permanent position now I I'm not working towards a deadline anymore you know it's not like I have to get this done now because I'm coming to the end of a contract I have to almost now take a step back and say well that pressure's off now um if I don't feel ready to apply for this grant scheme this year we'll do it next year it's not like I feel like that pressure is off which is a huge relief that's really nice that's amazing so to finish off this section, I'd just like to ask what motivates you as you go through your day to day, especially in this stage where you're kind of independent and have to motivate yourself. And do you have any advice for people who are listening who are feeling demotivated at the moment? I feel like that's a good question because I'm not a very reflective person. I never kind of really that's a question that involves me trying to self-reflect. <laughs> but um, I feel like the thing that I'm always I've always been a self-motivated and driven person which is why it's reflected in the fact that you know I was able to work during my PhD because I had a goal in mind of what I was doing that for so I was motivated by the outcome of what I wanted to do um and so I I think I'm I'm quite a self-motivated person anyway when I know there's something that I want to do um in science one thing that really motivates me is having a question that you want to answer and finding the best way to answer it. And I think that comes from my training in psychology in, in, you know, spending time really thinking about experimental design, what's the best way to ask a question and minimize the different variables that can actually, you know, interfere with what you're trying to test. And I think a lot of the time I would just, as a PhD student, just sit there with a pen and paper and just design an experiment and then think, well, actually, am I measuring the thing that I want to measure here or could potentially I be measuring something else? Am I measuring memory or am I measuring stress and anxiety? How can I control the stress and anxiety so I know I'm just measuring memory? And that's always been like a motivating factor for me in research is, right, I have a question, what's the best way to answer this question and test this this question that I have um so that's motivate always been kind of my driving force in research and what motivates me and and now I to try and get through the some harder bits with the admin and the teaching um I'm almost like well that's what's given me the permanent position that's what's given me the flexibility to do my research so I'm I just have to force myself to get through it um I feel like if, if people are feeling demotivated and they, they need kind of uh, any advice to try and get out of, of feeling demotivated. I think one of the great things about research is and academia more broadly is that we do so many different things. So, and this is one of the things that really appeals to me about academia is like I said before, all those different activities that we do, those different tasks, you know, doing lab work, data analysis, uh, writing, I feel like if you feel demotivated, often it comes from feeling you're not progressing on something or something isn't working. Maybe you're doing something in the lab and you're not getting the results that you're expecting. Um, You're maybe feeling you're not progressing in that particular uh, experiment that you're doing for whatever reason. Um, Task switching is a good way to kind of say, right, let's put that to one side, focus on something else. So you still feel like you're being productive because you're still doing your work you're just working on another aspect and you can always come back to that and often it happens with fresh eyes you know you look at something different and then you change something up and then it works so I find that if feeling demotivated way to challenge that is to just switch to doing something else you'll still feel like you're being productive and actually you might then get your motivation back that's great advice Cam thank you So now we know all about your wonderful squiggly career path, arguably the best kind. It's time to get on to some speedy career and life tips. In this part of the show, we're going to have some quick fire career questions. So Cam, I want your best short and snappy answers. Are you ready? Yes. Fantastic. Let's go. So what is the best thing about being a scientist? 
I've already kind of touched on this, but it's the variety of different things that we get to do. If you couldn't be a researcher, what would you be instead? A novelist. <laughs> I like writing. <laughs> nice. What does your typical day look like? Well, linking back to about the variety of different things that we do, I do not have a typical day. Um, so there is no typical day in research, I think, for anybody. Nice, speedy answer. And what makes a good supervisor? So I spend a bit longer talking about this one because I think actually a good supervisor is someone that knows when to provide support uh, when whenever the student or the postdoc needs it, but also to know when to loosen the reins as well, to allow the, the student or the postdoc to kind of have the freedom to try something, whether that's related to the research that they're doing or to their career more broadly. Um, I feel like sometimes, and I've probably mentioned this before, but I feel like sometimes supervisors, if if um, their, their student or their postdoc wants to start exploring options outside of academia, they almost see that as a slight on themselves. Like, oh, you're you're leaving, you want to leave academia because of something that I've done as a supervisor, but actually, this it's not about them. It's about the student or the postdoc making a decision that's right for them. And so often they can, a supervisor, a bad supervisor will discourage any exploration outside of academia. And that's not a good thing. So I think a good supervisor will support that. Um, they'll provide opportunities as well for the student or the postdoc. They'll help with the career progression. So they'll not solely be interested in the research that you're doing and what you can do for them. They should be interested in investing as you in you as a person, I think. Great answer. Hopefully that's helpful for anyone listening if you're applying to PhDs or also if you're training to be a supervisor as well in what a good supervisor should look like. Next question. What do you think it takes to be a successful woman in neuroscience? Mm, this is an interesting question. So there are very specific challenges and barriers that women face when not just pursuing a career in, in neuroscience, but in academia kind of more broadly. So, for example, we know that short term insecure employment and having to move from contract to contract like I did uh, city to city. But actually, for some people, it could even be from country to country that they have to make these moves. We know that that disproportionately affects women and it contributes to, to many women choosing to, to leave academia after their PhD or after a postdoc position in the search for a more secure employment and I think in general, women more so than men, they're going to be conscious of, of wanting some permanency in their employment uh, if they wish to kind of have the security to be able to buy a house, to be able to have children if that's what they want to do. So I think that actually the onus isn't on women to solve these problems. It's for the academic community as a whole. And I think until that happens and, you know, some things are improving, but it's not happening quick enough. I think until it actually happens, then we're going to actually continue to lose amazing female scientists from academia. So then that, that's kind of a negative thing to kind of end that on. But yeah, I think things are changing, but they're not happening quick enough. Absolutely. And that's why I do what I do over at Women in Neuroscience UK. Plug, plug. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic answer though, Cam. Wonderful. And the last quick fire question. What do you think is the best way to get students interested in science? I had to think about this one because um, I'm doing more and more public engagement now. And actually, I think the best way to get students interested is to actually get them in the lab so that they can see what we actually do. I feel like working as a scientist is not the same as it's kind of portrayed when science is taught in school, or at least not how it was taught in my comprehensive school in the northeast of England. And at the time when I was a student at school, I certainly had no ambition to become a scientist at all uh, because it was just so boring. It really was. It, it just did not reflect how fun and exciting it is to actually work as a scientist. So I think... You know, things like public engagement, anything like that, getting students, the school visits to come to the lab, things like that, are a really good way to show them what we actually do and get them interested and get them excited. And, and of course, representation matters uh, as part of that. Absolutely. Do you want to plug your soapbox science thing while we're on getting students interested? <laughs> it depends in when this podcast is going to come out because. True. Yeah, so um, I'm doing soapbox science at. Um, 
the BNA Festival of Neuroscience uh, in a couple of weeks. So that'll be in Brighton. So basically I'll be out um, on the beach <laughs> wearing a lab coat, talking to the public about my research. Totally terrifying, um, but a good way to get uh, our research out there and let people know what we actually do. Absolutely. That's really exciting. I hope it goes well for you, Cam. Hopefully nothing to be scared of. <laughs> Fantastic. So that was all of the quick fire questions. So it's time for me to recap on Cam's career. So Cam has had a fantastic varied career, as you've heard, and this has allowed her to pick up skills from both inside and outside of academia. Cam thinks that we should be not focusing on that linear career path to academia and instead stay open-minded, be flexible with our career plans, making sure to follow our interests wherever they take us. And this will eventually lead to the jobs that you feel most happy and most fulfilled in. And of course, it's important to remember non-academic careers are legitimate too. If you do end up outside of academia, this is far from failing, especially if you're pursuing a career that's more interesting to you or more accommodating to you and your values. So we're now in the last segment of the show. Before we finish up, we want to talk to you about mentoring. So Cam, why did you decide to be a mentor? That's a really good question. Um, so I had, so my PhD supervisor was a really good mentor for me. Um, at the time, not an official mentor, he was my supervisor. And of course, uh, really, really good supervisors will also mentor their students and their postdocs. Um, but often we can have mentors uh, that work best if they're separate from our supervisors because it's someone that's slightly removed from our day-to-day -day work. Um, but for me, my PhD supervisor, he was an excellent mentor for me for all the reasons that I said, what make a good supervisor? He he did those things. And at the time I thought all supervisors were like that. I didn't realize that people had bad supervisors until later on in my career when I heard about other people's experiences. Um, I thought that the reason why people got to that level in their career was because they were good and they did all these good things. Um, so because I had such a good experience and, and not only did he supervise me as a PhD student, he also mentored me as well and continues to mentor me to this day. I know that I can contact him about anything. If I have a you know a question about research or career question, like he will be there to give me advice, which is great. Um, I wanted to be able to provide that same level of support that I received because like I said, I know that not everybody will get that from their supervisor and actually in many situations, it's probably best to get it from somebody removed from their immediate work environment. So um, I wanted to be able to kind of pass on that um, experience that I hadn't be able to provide that for other people. That's a really nice backstory. It's lovely to hear that. So before you took on your mentoring role, did you take on any training? So um, not initially, because I actually started as a mentor through the BNA, so uh, the BNA Scholars Mentoring Scheme uh, in 2021 now, so about two years ago. Um, and I still mentor a PhD student through that. Um, so I actually started as a mentor through that scheme and we weren't provided with any training whatsoever. Um, and it, on reflection, it was one thing that I wish I had had because, um, we have regular two monthly meetings as you and I do Lizzie, um, uh, with, with, um, with my student Evie. And, uh, sometimes I would think, am I actually mentoring Evie or am I, just having a regular catch up with her and <laughs> is that is that is that actually mentoring or am I just like catching up with her is there certain things that actually we should be doing should it be more structured and um so when I joined the AIUK uh mentoring scheme luckily they did provide some training and actually it consolidated a lot of what I had already been doing which was good and it uh reinforced that a lot of there's almost not a framework for mentoring. There's some good tips that you can do, but actually it has to be very much directed by the relationship between the mentee and the mentor. So that training really helped me, uh, give me the confidence that what I had been doing was was right and okay. And I could then continue to, to do that through um, our mentoring, Lizzie. 
Amazing. And I can definitely vouch for the fact that you will probably have been fine without training. You're a fantastic mentor. Oh, thank Cam, you. So it's all good. It's all good. So finally, I think this is our last question. What advice do you have for anybody who's listening who doesn't have a mentor at the moment? Yeah, so I think definitely, you know, even if you, um, whatever stage in your career at, you can benefit from having a mentor and you can benefit from mentoring other people as well. Um, Because I've certainly learned a lot through our meetings, Lizzie, and and having uh, this kind of mentoring relationship. I've learned a lot as well. Um, I feel like it will make me a better supervisor. I feel like it's made me a better lecturer. Um, You know, I feel like I've gained a lot from it as well. So I think if there were any skills, good to hear. Yeah, definitely. I think it's <laughs> definitely a two-way thing. Um, and mm. I and I feel like if there are schemes that um, people can get involved in, if they don't have a mentor, then definitely join those schemes. But if there aren't any schemes currently, uh, like the BNA one or the AIUK one that people can get in, uh, involved in, then actually just be proactive and seek out um, somebody that is either in your department or within your university that you think can provide you with the support that you need, whether that's um, whether you want uh, support with your career progression in academia or whether it's that you want to explore options outside of academia. Maybe you could find somebody that works outside of academia that has kind of followed that path and could maybe give you some advice on on how to pursue that then be proactive reach out to people get in touch with them um not everybody like i said will have supervisors that also have those mentoring skills it might be that you have to be proactive and find somebody that can provide you with that support could be somebody in your department could be somebody within your university but actually it could be somebody completely removed from that as well but be proactive just reach out, contact people. The majority of people, especially if there's someone that you've chosen to contact, they're going to be happy to be contacted and probably flattered that you, you know, you've reached out to them, to be fair. Absolutely. I agree with that. There's no harm in asking whether it's in person or somebody that you've connected with online. Just go for it and see what happens. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to give a massive thank you to my amazing mentor and guest, Dr. Cam Amin Ali. Thanks, Lizzie. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm glad. And if you'd like to find out more about Cam and her work, you can find her bio and mine over on the Dementia Researcher website. You'll also find dozens of blogs written by Cam there, which might also be a source of inspiration for you. The Ask Your Mentor podcast will be back very soon with another mentee talking to their mentor. So do look out for this. But for now, I'm back off to the office to work on my PhD and to continue to ponder about where my career path might take me. I'm Lizzie English and you've been listening to the Ask Your Mentor podcast from Dementia Researcher in association with Alzheimer's Research UK. (laughs) 